I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Mercenary Podcast. This is your host, Nurse Rick. And before we get into today's topic, I would like to ask you all a question. When was the last time that you were watching TV? You were out at the bar with your bros, watching your favorite sports team kick some ass. You were at home on YouTube trying to figure out how to assemble the new Thinkenwagen dresser that you just bought from Ikea. But it's incredibly difficult because probably, like me, you don't read Swedish instructions. Or you were on the couch with your spouse and your children watching your favorite weekly family programming that you've all been waiting for to come out. Then it happens. The quarter second black screen and the thoughts, they race They race through your head like a stampeding thunder of thoroughbred horses of the Kentucky Derby. What am I going to see? What's it going to be? Is it going to be a life-changing device that's going to advance humanity for the better? Shamwile? Slapchop? Oxyclean? Flexeal. But to your utter disappointment and dismay, it's none of those things. And then you hear, you hear it before you see it, the music. And you immediately know it's another fucking pharmaceutical ad. And then the pony show begins. The actors pop up on the screen, negative emotion on the main character's face as they're suffering. They're definitely suffering. The testimonial begins. For 25 years, I've suffered from mild to moderate to severe skin dandruff. I did not enjoy life. I couldn't leave the house without covering myself in essentially a burqa to hide my horrible skin from all of humanity until I discovered Sky Rizzy. And since I discovered Sky Rizzy, my life has transformed in unbelievable ways. I went from covering myself from head to toe in cotton to leaving my husband of 20 years and becoming a professional women's volleyball player, playing every weekend in the smallest bikini I could possibly fucking find. I am a nude model for oil painters, old and new. I have even applied to become a Playboy model and show off my beautiful fucking skin to the entire world. And then comes the side effects part of the commercial where a man in a monotone voice starts rattling off side effects like an auctioneer taking the highest bids at an auction just faster than fucking lightning. You can't even count these things. Just one after another. Bang, 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 bang. Talk to your doctor about Sky Rizzy. What's going on? Well, this list of side effects that sound like potential death is being rattled off on the screen. Are they putting it in big print all over the screen? No, 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 no. Not at all. No. They're in very, very tiny print near the very bottom, almost invisible to the naked eye. Meanwhile, the rest of your screen is just glamour shots of professional volleyball. 
and Sports Illustrated photographer is taking pictures of this chick's new, wonderful, beautiful skin that's been transformed in less than four months at a 90% effective rate. And then, it cuts to black again. And when it cuts to black, you wonder to yourself, okay, that was shit. But maybe the next commercial will actually be something that applies to me and will actually be useful in my life. But, it's probably another pharmaceutical ad. You're shit out of luck, man. Sorry. So how do we get here, you might ask yourselves. Well, I don't exactly know, but I did do some research into the history of it. So, that's what today's mercenary podcast uh, topic is about. It's going to be pharmaceutical marketing and advertising in abridged history. Let's jump into it. So, what do we have here? Let's start with some fun facts about the pharmaceutical industry. You want to know something that's kind of enraging? There's only two countries in the world that's got to deal with this bullshit. It is New Zealand and the United States of America. Who would have thought no other country in the world lets their uh, consumers and patrons be harassed by the pharmaceutical industry like America? The United States has the largest pharmaceutical market in the world. And I don't think that should be shocking to anyone. With the amount of pharmaceutical ads we see, uh, if you thought we didn't have the biggest pharmaceutical market in the world, you would be crazy. Or don't have access to television. Which honestly, probably wouldn't be the worst thing if this is going to be all you see all day. Six out of ten of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world are based out of the United States. I don't know where the other four are at, but I'm assuming somewhere in the European Union. The pharmaceutical industry has paid some of the largest fines in history besides banks and oil companies. Now, you remember the whole um, opioid crisis? You know, the whole Purdue Pharma thing? You know, it's not that long ago. It was 24, 25 years where it started. Um, yeah. They paid a fine for that. They paid a lot of fines for other things. Um, mostly related to customers' beliefs about a drug's efficacy, and then uh, when really bad side effects pop up that no one was expecting, um, except for the company, they get sued, and they got to pay out a lot of money. In 2018, California had the most employees in the pharmaceutical industry at 47,000 workers. I don't really know that's relevant, but of course, California's a... Uh, Big state with a lot of people, and uh, yeah, a lot of pharmaceutical stuff goes on there. All right, let's get into drug advertising history. The first U.S. drug advertisement started in the early 1900s, and as I'm looking at my PowerPoint, I will tell you that these early advertisements are quite fucking wild. In an unregulated era, drug advertisers would make boastful claims about drugs' effectiveness. There's this uh, picture on here I have of Hamlin's Wizard Oil, which is a very popular drug back in the day. Um, and on the poster, it says Hamlin's Wizard Oil, the greatest family remedy for rheumatism, neuralgia, toothache, headache, diphtheria, sore throat, lame back, sprains, bruises, corns, cramps, colic diarrhea, and pain, and inflammation. We'll cure your rheumatism. Sounds like a fucking cure-all, doesn't it? Well, here's another one. 500,000 women have been restored to health by Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound. Yeah, veggies save the world, apparently, in this chick's cocktail. Their letters are on file in Mi Mrs. Pinkham's office and prove this statement to be a fact, not a mere boast. Women must take into consideration this great and un 
unequaled record. What does it say that Pinkham's vegetable compound cures, however? So, Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound claimed, quote, to cure entirely the worst form of female complaints, all ovarian troubles, inflammation, and ulceration, falling, and displacements. Said it was a cure to falls in women. That's not accurate. But with these unparalleled boastful claims of drugs. So what happened after all these boastful claims were made? The U.S. Congress passed its first act aimed at safe pharma practices. It was the 1906 Pure Food and and Drugs Act. Although in 1911, the Supreme Court court ruled the act did not prohibit advertisers from making false claims. Really now? The Supreme Court said that they could still make false claims. That's unsettling. But here's some more history. In 1912, Congress overruled the Supreme Court's ruling by formally prohibiting drug manufacturers from making false therapeutic claims about drugs' effectiveness. In 1938, the U.S. passed the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act after over 100 people died from taking a drug known as elixir sulfonamide. This act mandated companies test drugs for safety and seek FDA approval prior to being marketed. That was a good thing. That was a really good thing. Here's what happened with that elixir sulfonamide. There was a pharmacist back in that day that worked for the company that produced this drug. They ran out of a key ingredient. Hold on. In 1937... S.E. Massengill Company, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, created an oral preparation of sulfonamide using diethylene glycol as the solvent excipient and called the preparation elixir sulfonamide. DEG is poisonous to humans and other mammals, but Harold Watkins, the company's chief pharmacist and chemist, was not aware of this. Although the first case of fatality from the related ethylene glycol occurred in 1930 and studies had been published in medical journals stating DEG could cause kidney damage or failure, its toxicity was not widely known prior to the incident. Watkins simply mixed raspberry flavoring into the powdered drug and then dissolved the mixture in DEG. Animal testing was not required by law and Massengill performed none. There were no regulations at the time requiring pre-market safety testing of drugs. So, when we look at this, it seems like that whole congressional act to uh, start testing drugs for safety and efficacy before their marketing was a pretty good, pretty good thing for uh, our society. In 1951, Congress passed the Durham-Humphrey Amendments to the FDC Act, which is the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which created the first real definition and regulation of prescription drugs. Guess what? Time for more history. By 1958, physicians and pharmacists received received an estimated 3,790,809,000 pages of paid advertisements in medical journals. You thought you were getting hit with a lot of pharmaceutical advertisements on TV. Holy shit, I would have hated to be a doctor or a pharmacist back in the 1950s. Also, in addition to those medical journals, 741,213,700 direct mailers and 20 million phone calls from pharmaceutical reps. That sounds like hell. In 1969, the FDA finalized its regulations regarding advertisement 
advertising, requiring a true statement of information, summary of side effects, contraindications, and medication effectiveness. So, we kind of see that today in our TV advertisements. We get all those things from that 1969 act put in today's pharmaceutical ads. How they're put in there, however, is not regulated. It can be teeny, teeny, tiny print at the very bottom being railed off by a guy that speaks faster than an auctioneer at an auction. And it just has, you know, good deal with it, I guess. In 1983, the FDA commissioner, Arthur Hull, voiced concerns that direct-to-consumer advertising would lead to patients pressuring physicians for unneeded medications, increased drug costs, and believe newer drugs would be vastly more therapeutic than sim similar medications already existing. Hmm. That's interesting. Sounds like Arthur Hall was a bit of a psychic. Or at least he understood foreshadowing. Because he foreshadowed exactly today's pharmaceutical market. It's kind of nuts. Um, but anyway. It's kind of known that when people see these ads on TV and they have a symptom that remotely matches what the, the drug claims to treat, what do they do? They go and talk to the doctor about it. What does the doctor do? Say, well, I don't think you need this, but like, well, I think it'll help me. And the doctor's like, okay, fine, here's your prescription for it. Like, go ahead and, I don't know, just take the drug, man. Um, so anyway, that's probably not a good thing for our society that, already uses drugs at way too high of a rate. Um, like polypharmacy is a big issue. Polypharmacy means you have a lot of prescriptions. How many of those prescriptions do you really need? There's no magic pill that's going to fix what you're trying to fix. So let's move on now. Pharmaceutical companies showed apprehension in direct to consumer advertising between the 1950s through the late 1980s. That, that's right. The pharmaceutical companies, they were hesitant about it. They were really, they're like, ah, I don't know if this is going to be the best way to get this drug out on the market and, you know, help people because that's what they do. Um, then they realized how much money they could make by advertising paid ads directly to the public under the umbrella of consumer rights. Yes, consumer rights to let consumers choose exactly what gene altering or gene expression or ACE inhibitors, whatever drugs you wanted, we're going to advertise it directly to you because we feel like if we tell you about it, even if you don't need it, you're going to want to buy it because we told you it's good. Um, and that's your consumer right. Between 1991 and 1995, ad spending by pharmaceutical companies jumped from $55 million to $363 million. That's in four years. That's how effective their ad campaigns were in getting people to buy their drug. They were willing to spend, instead of $55 million, $363 million telling you guys directly about their new drugs. That's what they did. By 2005, the pharmaceutical ad spending reached a staggering $3.3 billion. In 2002, 98% of Americans reported seeing some form of ad for prescription drugs. I bet now 
It's 100%. Everyone sees drug advertisements fucking everywhere. The ones I'm looking at right now are for Viagra. And these are from the 90s. Viagra. Because she will bring you breakfast in the morning. Viagra. Helps guys with ED get and keep an erection. And, dude, the pictures for these advertisements are fucking unreal. Like, one, the dude's just sitting in a suit and tie in bed with the sheets up on him. And his wife's just fucking serving him breakfast in bed on her knees. Just like, oh my god, I fucking love your heart on. Um, the second one is just this really hot blonde chick just sitting in a cabana on a bed on a beach somewhere. And just looking ready. Just... Oh my God, since you got on Viagra, I'm just so horny all the time. It's ridiculous. It's, is it ethical? No. Is it good moral, um, good morals to, to push advertisement like this to people? Absolutely not. But they do it and they don't break the law doing it. Um, and the only way to change it is going to be for people to hear this or hear other similar articles or podcasts of this and uh maybe maybe write your uh congressman about fixing this stuff because it's getting kind of out of hand 2022 reports show a total spending of 8.1 billion dollars on direct to consumer ads for new and existing prescription drugs so just for reference we went from $3.3 billion in 2005 to $8.1 billion in 2022 for direct-to-consumer advertising. That's over double. That's almost triple the spending in a course of, what, fucking 17 years just to get people to buy their, buy their fucking drugs? Buy this pill. It's going to fix everything. It's a magic pill. I promise you it'll fix everything. Um, I'll leave the side, the side effects in the uh, show notes down below here. Just don't look at the bottom of the screen. Look at the brand new professional volleyball player and her thong on the beach and uh, focus on that, not the uh, you know possible death that awaits you. U.S. drug advertising regulations. Today we have three different types of ads that are allowed, but they're regulated. Not very well, but um, we have product claim ads. We have reminder ads and we have help seeking advertisements. Um, I'll tell you which one is the most prevalent. Product claim ads. They're everywhere. That's the ones you see on TV. That's the ones you see on YouTube. That's the ones you see fucking everywhere you get any media stream to. Um, watch the Super Bowl. You see drug advertisements in the Super Bowl? Bet you will this year. I bet you'll see some drug advertisements in the Super Bowl this year. Um, on top of Bud Light and Ford and Chevy and Dodge, Ram, whatever it is, um, probably see some shit in there for, for pharmaceuticals too because they have the money for it. They obviously have the money for it. Uh, they'll throw it at it if it makes you buy their shit. These ads are regulated by either the FDA or the FTC. FDA covers prescription drugs. FTC covers over-the-counter drugs. There is not a actual agency. There's not a three-letter agency in our government that just strictly regulates advertising of all drugs to American consumers. Um, pretty fucking ridiculous. I mean, you have so many other agencies that do so many other things. And we're just be like, yeah, we're just going to let the FDA not only 
regulate how you test the drugs and everything. We're also just going to let them advertise to you willy-nilly. So, product claim ads. Let's talk about these. Requirements for these ads to be legal include the brand name and generic name. You see those in all your TV commercials. Along with the one FDA-approved use of the drug must include risk of taking the medication and a source for more information about the drug. See ad in Golf Digest. And um, that's one of Cialis, which is Viagra's competitor. And it's it's a husband and wife just kind of kissing a little bit over the over the thought of him just popping that Cialis pill. Apparently it's a aphrodisiac. Print ads also require the exact statement. You are encouraged to report negative side effects of the prescription drugs to the FDA. Visit MedWatch or call 1-800-FDA-1088. No one ever does that. They know people don't ever do that. They don't ever see that part because it's off the screen um, before their eyes drift downward to see the very small print at the bottom. Um, while Sports Illustrated photographers are taking pictures of the new, uh, taking pictures of the new professional volleyball player. One of my favorite um, spoofs of this was actually in SNL quite a while ago. It's a dude and two chicks. They're sitting in their respective bathtubs on a beach and sunset. And it says Cialis for three ways. Fucking hysterical because the way these drugs have been marketed, it's exactly what a dude that wants a hard on is going to think is going to happen if he uh, all of a sudden gets Cialis. And their expectations are never met. So, reminder ads. What are these? FDA requires that reminder ads only have the name of the drug and no uses of the drug. We've seen these from time to time. Like if you go to a pharmacy counter or if you go to your doctor's office, it'll just say, for example, Eliquis and nothing else. And it'll say, find out what's new. Learn more about this. Ask your doctor about um, they are not allowed to suggest uses of the drug on these advertisements. Drugs considered to be dangerous are not permitted to have reminder ads. Uh, drugs with a boxed warning are always required to have risks in their ads. So if a drug has been deemed too dangerous, uh, to, how do I phrase this? If the, the side effects of the drug have been deemed too dangerous, um, to be pushed directly to consumers. They can still make commercials about it, but they just can't do reminder ads. They can't do help-seeking advertisements for it, I don't believe. Um, but anyway, that's a very small selection of, of drugs because generally the advertised ones are new. You don't see a whole lot of new advertisements for old drugs from 25 years ago because generally that's when they're patent expires on it and now competitors can make generics so it's no longer the big money maker for pharmaceutical companies but however these ads are generally found in print clinics pharmacies and on your sidebar on the sites you visit after researching medication because you know data brokers like to you know know if you're searching up anything so they can sell that information to companies that are willing to buy it such as pharmaceutical companies <clears throat> Now, we're going to finish up with uh, help-seeking ads. Help-seeking ads have no drug information on them. They say things like, do you have boner problems? Do you have a runny nose? Do you have trouble staying focused? 
The only information on the ad is usually the pharmaceutical company name and a number to call for information, which means you're going to get hooked up to a healthcare rep or not healthcare representative. That's advanced directives and shit. Uh, you're going to get hooked up to a pharmaceutical rep that's going to be like, oh, yeah, you have these symptoms. Well, hey, how about this? You just go and talk to your doctor about this specific medication. Um, it should help treat all these symptoms. And, um, you know, your risk of death from this in 15 to 20 years is, you know, it's not zero. But it's low, I think. Um, so anyway, that's going to do it for our history of pharmaceutical advertising here in the um, excuse me. Anyway, that's going to do it for our history of pharmaceutical advertising here in the U.S. of A. Um, I hope the show helps open some some eyes for people or your ears. Helps you think about these things a little bit before you go and just randomly talk to your doctors about these drugs, or before you let your grandma and grandpa or mom and dad go talk about some of these drugs. Yeah. Key takeaways. If I had uh, four things I would like you guys to take away from this episode, it would be pharmaceutical ads have plagued us for over 100 years from wizard oil to penis pills. Regulations have evolved a couple times to protect patients from shady pharma marketing. Whether or not that protection was efficient or sufficient or effective, it's you know debatable, but a couple times they've tried. There was some heavy debate about whether it was safe and ethical to advertise directly to the public, and it's still debated today. There are people that still talk about this. There are worries about it, and you know none of their names. I don't know none of their names. Why don't we know any of their names? Because they don't get any damn coverage. Um, at least not enough of it. Vox had an article a few years back on it. I'm sure a couple other media outlets have, have covered it occasionally, but it doesn't get the press that it truly deserves. Current regulations are at least geared towards trying to keep marketing honest to the public, but the penis pill commercials are still fucking ridiculous. So that is going to do it for this week's episode of the Mercenary Podcast. Uh, as always, I do have the links for the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, slash X. I've got the links for YouTube and Rumble as well. I will be posting my episodes to those platforms, and I am working on getting some video up. I would recommend that you guys go check out my website. Uh, however, I kind of broke that the other day. Uh, I'm working on getting that fixed. So hopefully by next week's episode, it'll be up and running again. But that is going to do it. And I wish you souls a beautiful week. And I will catch you guys next time. Haha, <laughs> listeners, I almost forgot this week's mercenary fun fact. This week's mercenary fun fact comes from CBS News in an article that was re released a few years ago. And uh, this treatment was crocodile dung. What was the treatment with this crocodile dung, you might ask? Did they smoke it to feel better? Did they eat it to feel better? Well, in truth, it was neither of those things. So let's read this little excerpt here. Think condoms are a drag. In ancient Egypt, the contraceptive of choice was crocodile dung. Dry dung was inserted into the vagina... The idea being that it would soften as it reached body temperature to form an impenetrable barrier. I don't think that worked, and that is pretty disgusting. Uh, so there's your mercenary fun fact for this week's episode. <laughs>